You're listening to sermon audio from Grace Mosaic, a congregation of the Grace DC Network in Northeast DC. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org. Recently, my daughter was eager to show us her favorite documentary. It's called Undefeated, and it tells the story of the Manassas Tigers, a high school football team that is located in an under-resourced, poor African-American community in Memphis. And it's a team that has just had losing streak year after year, had never won a playoff game. And uh, until their coach, Bill Courtney, uh, takes the reins. He is a white man. He was raised by a single mother. And he shares the ache he had as a player when he would watch all the dads walk off the field with their sons carrying their shoulder pads, but he would walk off alone. And so he has a heart for these uh, boys. And uh, he loves his whole team, but there are three young men in particular that he um, is focused on. And uh, they are Montrell, Money Brown, O.C. Brown, and Chavis Daniels. And to watch these young men contend against poverty, racism from other teams, injury, uh, pressure from gangs, and to see them emerge as leaders on the team and have a successful season is very inspiring. But what's even more inspiring is to see years later how they become leaders in their community. There's no way to watch the thing and not feel like, you know, I want to live well. But especially for those players that followed after them. Because everybody that joined the Manassas Tigers knew that they were part of a heroic legacy. A great legacy and story. And the writer of Hebrews does the same thing for us. As he's been recounting the names of these saints in their faith, as he does in our passage, he reminds us uh, of the many challenges and opposition they faced, but more so that everybody that is a follower of Jesus Christ, we are part of that great legacy. That is our story, and we're called to live up to it. And so we get three things that help us to do that. The first is we're given, uh, for the inspiration of our faith, a preview of faith, The second thing is the purifying of faith. And the third thing is the pleasure of faith. Let's look at those together. First of all, the preview of faith. Now, although I just gave you a little preview of the documentary, I actually don't like previews at all. When they come in the movie theater on the TV, I stop up my ears. I close my eyes. I'm always trying to beat that next episode arrow that shows up because I don't want to know anything about what's coming. But there are some previews you don't want to miss. And that's the preview that's given here. It's, it's a preview of who we become by faith and what we can achieve by faith. Now, if you're familiar with the Bible and you heard some of those names like Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, you may have thought, well, wait a second. Isn't this the chapter that talks about the hearers of faith? Why are they in it? I mean, wasn't Gideon the one who really doubted God could defeat the Midianites? Didn't Barak have to be prompted and pushed by Deborah to go do his duty? 
wasn't Samson in you know foolish romantic relationships and it caused his people to get in danger? Didn't Jephthah make a foolish vow that ended up sacrificing the life of his daughter? And how about David? He, of course, famously or infamously committed adultery and then orchestrated the murder of one of his best friends. Why are they in here? Well, it's true, if you only look at their worst moments, you'd wonder why this faith preview has them in here. But this is a wonderful and important thing to see by the fact that the writer of Hebrews includes them in this chapter. He's telling us that the story of our faith, the story of your faith, will not be told from the perspective of your failures, but rather from the perspective of your perseverance. That our gracious Lord won't remember us with our sliding back, but rather our pressing on. He won't remember us by way of our fall downs, but our get-ups as we move on. And that's the case with these uh, people that have been mentioned. Uh, Yes, Gideon doubts, but then he goes on to be a mighty mighty warrior in a battle with just a trick up his sleeve instead of a sword in his hand. And Barak does care about the, the, the victory going to the glory of God. Samson finally recovers his not only spiritual strength, but his physical strength and his use of God to defeat enemies. Jephthah finally learns how to use his words a little bit better as he uh, defends Israel against the accusations of King Amnon. And of course, King David goes on to be known as the greatest king of Israel. And so we see in this preview something that uh, our faith, the story of our faith, will not end in failure. It will end in victory because of uh, what theologians call the doctrine of perseverance, that those that are chosen by God and holy and dearly loved by God will cross the finish line. And that ought to give you and I heart. It ought to encourage us. Follow along with this quote. In all the saints, something reprehensible, that means sinful, is ever to be found. Yet faith, though halting and imperfect, is still approved by God. There is therefore no reason why the faults we labor under should break us down or dishearten us, provided we by faith go on in the race of our calling. The adversary, the devil, the accuser works hard to spin our story of faith to us so that we only see its failures. Uh, Maybe as you look back at this past week, I would ask you, how do you see your story of faith? Is it mostly, well, I messed up here and I lost my patience here and I could have been, you know, more loving here? Is that what you remember? Or do you remember the times where God persevered your faith? Um, You know, when the home movies are shown in heaven, we won't be watching the accuser's cut. We'll be watching the director's cut, God's cut. And it won't be a a picture of faithlessness, but rather faithfulness. And so you and I need to begin to choose an alternative ending. You know, some shows and films have that where you can pick a different ending. Well, we need to begin to pick the ending that harmonizes with the word of God and what he says about our faith. But it's not only a preview of who we become in faith, but also what we achieve through faith. And here the writer uh, refers to some of the best stories in the Bible. He refers to those who face lions in, by their faith. And uh, Samson did that, but of course, Daniel is the famous story. 
where Daniel knows if he continues to pray to the Lord, as was his custom, he will be thrown in a lion's den. That decree had been made, but he continues anyway to pray to the Lord in light of that danger. You have to imagine, you know, as he prayed, he probably battled his focus thinking about lions while he was making his prayer to the Lord. And we're told these lions were so mean and hungry that the the person that actually accused Daniel wrongly and then gets thrown in the pit, that these lions were so mean and hungry before he even got to the ground, they devoured him. And yet while Daniel was there, they were quiet the entire time. They didn't speak. They didn't roar. And then we have those that faced faith through the fire. Uh, And here they're referring to the young men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who refused to worship Nebuchadnezzar. And so he said he would throw them in the furnace, and he heated that furnace seven times hotter than it normally was. In fact, we're told that the big soldiers that bound them up and threw them in there, they themselves burned up. And yet when those men went into the fire, they were not only unharmed, but their their bands were loosened. You couldn't even smell smoke in them. Well, there was a fourth man in the fire, the Lord himself, And those by faith that performed great acts, like raising people from the dead, Elijah and Elisha, are those that were mighty in battle, like the woman Jael, where she defeated the commander of the Canaanites and gave us a whole new meaning to the word pegged. Or those that fought for justice, warriors of justice, like the minor prophets, like Amos. Or Nehemiah, who fought for the justice of those that were being taken advantage of. These great acts of faith, But all of them preview one great hero of faith, the one that continued to pray while he heard the roaring of death in his ears, the one who would be bound but not loosened on the cross, but the one who would raise from the dead. And it's his spirit that lives in you. Jesus once said something that's so extraordinary, it's hard for our faith to get around it. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do and greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Jesus is saying, you know, as I ascend to heaven and I send my spirit into your hearts, the greater church will accomplish more than I even did by faith. Now, we may be in a pandemic, but it doesn't have to be a faith pandemic, does it? It could be that you look back at this time and by faith can say, my faith was strong at the worst time. God upheld me. And so we're given a preview of faith, but also we're taught about the purifying of faith. The writer now switches stories of deliverance to stories of suffering. And he's referring to likely some of the prophets or those that lived between the Old Testament and New Testament period, or maybe even some that were in his congregation that went through suffering the first time around. And there's many sorts of suffering. They, they, they suffered destitution. That means they have to go around without normal clothing or normal food or normal shelter. He says they went about in skins of sheep and goats. They had nothing. Or they suffered oppression. They were afflicted, they were bullied, they were tortured because of their faith and because they walked in the ways of Jesus, ways of the Lord. They were humiliated, they were made fun of, 
The world mocked them and treated them as if they were worthless, but the writer says the world actually wasn't worthy of them. They were marginalized. That is, their right to justice was not answered. Uh, They were ignored. Their dignity uh, was taken advantage of. They were nameless in the way that the Hebrew writer doesn't mention their names. Recently, our family was watching a documentary on uh, Asian Americans. And uh, part of the documentary focused on the building of the Great Railroad that went from east in the United States to west. And uh, mostly Irish immigrants worked from east to the center, but it was Chinese immigrants that worked from the west to the center. And these Chinese immigrants were, were amazing. The conditions they worked in, the heat they worked in, backbreaking work, the danger. There were oftentimes avalanches. People would die. Well, finally, when the two sides of the railroad came together, uh, the golden spike, it was called, was driven in. And there's a famous picture of uh, everybody assembled there. And what you notice, there is not one Chinese immigrant in the picture. They weren't allowed to be in the picture. Their dignity, even justice, was ignored. God's people have always suffered these things. And it makes you ask a question, well, how is that fair? Why is it that some people's faith seems to result in these victories, but other people's faith leads them down the path of suffering? Maybe you've had that question. You look around at other Christians and say, well, they seem to do fine with their faith. God seems to bless them. You know, their health is good. They're not dealing with chronic illness. Their kids seem to thrive. They seem that their jobs go well. Why is it that I feel like my path is suffering at this time? And there are two things that um, the scriptures tell us. The first of all, and it's referred to in this passage, is that God seeks to purify faith, but also give honor to those. It's actually an honor. In the book of Acts, we read that the disciples were being persecuted by the religious leaders. And one time after they had been persecuted, they actually um, were walking away, and it says that they rejoiced because they were counted worthy of suffering. And here we think, of course, the great story of this is the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus, who spent many nights without a home, many days with his belly hungry. Jesus that was mocked and spit on a whole company of soldiers that came around him and pressed a crown of thorns in his head. People that made fun of him as he was dying on the cross. In the book of John, we're told that suffering and glory went hand in hand, that even in that suffering, something was happening, that God was showing honor and glory because of the way they handled it, the way they behaved in their suffering. One person has said, because firmness and strength of faith shines brighter against trouble, reproach, and the shadow of death. The brightness of the faith shines brighter even against the darkness. But there's a second thing we can come to understand, and that's the meaning of this word promise. Maybe it's been confusing as you've read. It seems like some people obtain a promise. Some people don't obtain a promise. Other all die before the promise. What does that mean? Well, there are two things that help us understand it. First of all, the passage is referring to promise in two ways. One, there's what we might call the capital P promise. And that's the one that the book of Revelation talks about, that promise that one day on the new heavens and the new earth, there'll be no more suffering. There'll be no more sickness. There'll be no more evil. There won't even be death then. 
And all of us are waiting for that day. All of us will die before we get to that great promise. But God in his kindness and mercy, kindness and mercy, loves to give us little tastes of that promise with small p promises. Maybe he brings a healing to us. Maybe he delivers us from some danger. It's sort of like when you're baking uh, cookies or a cake. Uh, maybe uh, you've done this with your mom and dad, kids, or you're in the kitchen, you're making the batter, and the batter goes into the, uh, you know, the cake pan and put in the oven. But uh, there's always some leftover batter in there, right? And uh, your parents invite you. Hopefully they invite you. They don't eat it all themselves, but you can run your finger along the bowl, and you can taste a little bit about what is to come. This is what God gives us through the small p, promises. But you have to be careful, right? You have to be careful that you don't eat too much of that batter so that you're not hungry or maybe you're sick when the cake comes out, when it's time for the cake. And a similar thing can happen with our faith. We can allow too much of our faith to rest upon those small p promises. Too much of our faith to rest upon God giving us that healing or giving us that deliverance. That is the measure of our faith. And the measure of God's faithfulness is reduced to, well, is he going to give me the healing I long for, the prayer that I long for? We have to keep in mind that Jesus spent days and hours and hours lavishing healing, miraculous feeding, all these things that he did for people. But he lamented, he was sad that so few repented and believed in him. So few, they were just satisfied with the batter and not the cake. They didn't want to turn and live to God. You see, faith always has to have two things. And the church father Chrysostom says this, that faith accomplishes great things and faith suffers great things. It's both of those. And that suffering then purifies us and purifies our faith, helps us long for the right things. The apostle Peter talks about this. He says, though you've been grieved with many trials, you rejoice that your faith has been tested. You know, it's, it's turning out like gold. But the faith not only purifies us, it also purifies our witness. When people see a suffering Christian forgive, love, and serve, they get a rare glimpse of something beautiful. John Wesley, who uh, was a great English Christian and pastor, um, had his faith changed by some German Christians. They were Moravian Christians. And he first met them on a boat, but he had other encounters with them that he would journal about. But uh, follow along with me as I read one of the journal entries when he first met them on a ship. I had long before observed the great seriousness of their, the Moravian Christians, behavior. Of their humility, they had given a continual proof by performing those servile offices, that is, lowly jobs, for the other passengers, which none of the English would undertake. They, Moravians, desired and would receive no pay, saying it was good for their proud hearts, and their loving Savior had done more for them, showing a meekness which no injury could move. If they were pushed, struck, or thrown down, they rose again and went away. But no complaint was found in their mouth. Then one day during a worship service they were having, uh, there was a storm that came upon the boat. And Wesley writes, the sea, uh, the sea broke over, split the mainsail in pieces, 
covered the ship, and poured in between the decks as if the great deep had already swallowed us up. A terrible screaming began among the English. The Germans calmly sung on. I asked one of them afterwards, were you not afraid? He answered, I thank God, no. I asked, but were not your women and children afraid? He replied mildly, no, our women and children are not afraid to die. Their faith, the witness of it, changed Wesley forever. The way they did lowly tasks or when someone pushed them down or in the face of danger. Uh, It's often the case that we often want our faith to look good, but we also want to look good at the same time, right? Um, we, we, we want our faith to look good before other people while we're being a great parent or while we're doing great at our job and getting promoted. But when does Jesus say all manner of people will be drawn to him? It's when he is lifted up on the cross, when he suffers. That's when his witness is the brightest and why many people come to him. Suffering purifies us, it purifies our witness. But lastly, we need to talk about the pleasure of faith. We read, And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. So the Lord wanted the Old Testament saints to wait till that final day. That way they could actually see the Messiah, the one whom all their sacrifices and laws pointed to. He wanted the New Testament saints to wait. They would see the Spirit come upon the church and the gospel to spread all over the world. He wants you and I to wait. So till the full number of his people from every tribe, tongue, and nation come into his family. But there's another reason he wants us to wait. Because there's some moments that are so sacred and so special. Everybody has to be there, don't they? You know, kids, maybe you've experienced this on Christmas morning. You want to run down and open a present, and your parents say, no, no, wait for your brother or your sister. Or uh, we're taking the family photo or the team photo, and someone says, well, so-and-so's not here. Don't take it yet. It's important that everybody be there. It's important uh, that everybody celebrate that moment at the same time. I was reminded of a bike trip that both uh, my daughters took when they were in middle school, and I went with them on both trips. And it was uh, a difficult trip. It was a 120-mile trip over three days. It was often through rain and mud. Uh, People would, you know, sometimes have injury, wipe out. There'd be bumps and bruises. Some people might be too sick to continue. And, of course, we'd get spread out because you had strong bikers and fast bikers and slower ones like me. But the the school always did something that, that was just so wonderful. When you got to that final day and you got to the last mile, they made sure everybody caught up. In fact, they waited and they would take the last person and put them up front. So they would all cross the finish line together because of their relationship with one another, because of their relationship uh, to the important cause and mission that they were involved in. And it's the same with you and I. Someone has said that to be glorified together is a great delight. You see, uh, my faith, if it's healthy and growing, uh, it just won't get uh, all its pleasure from me crossing the finish line or me being able to persevere through suffering. Because faith leads to love. 
And it makes me long to have the others that share my faith around me when I cross that finish line. That's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. And I so long for that faith. I long for you to have it. You know, I want to be there, you know, Grace Mosaic, when you cross the finish line. Brothers and sisters of Meridian Hill, I want to be there when you cross the finish line. Brothers and sisters of Grace Downtown, I want to be there when you cross the finish line. It's that pleasure and joy that we'll have together. And mostly God desires his family. He has this holy discontent. He wants all of us to be together for that last day. And so you see, uh, through the preview of our faith, the purifying of our faith, the pleasure of our faith, we are being given inspiration now for our faith. Would you pray with me? Mosaic. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org.